This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This podcast is sponsored by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 5000 is the latest digital autopilot providing increased safety plus decreased pilot workload. It's being certified for Part 23 and Part 25 retrofit aircraft such as high-performance turboprop and turbine jet aircraft. To learn more about the STEC 5000, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. This week on Hangar Talk, happy birthday to the E6B. And there are some new rules for pilots flying in the Washington, D.C., Sifra, and Freeze. I want my flying car. But it won't be in a Mooney, Ian. And finally, Garmin has some new instruments out. Are you ready to do some Hangar Talk, Ian? I am. Let's do it, David. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. The 1056 turn right heading 130, contact final 132.4. Turn right, With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. And uh, David, our guest this week, you, you've been doing all the heavy lifting lately. You caught up with Scott Fursing. He does uh, sales and business development for Allsim, a simulator manufacturer out of France. That's right, Ian. And not only are they out of France, but they have a pretty good footprint here in the United States because things in the simulator market are heating up. So Scott is going to talk to us a little bit about career pilots and how regular pilots also, like you and I, can do a little bit with uh, simulators and still benefit our aviation pursuits. Fantastic. Okay, so we'll get to more of that later. But let's start off. This is just kind of a cool factoid. The E6B, you remember that, right? I have an E6B somewhere. Yeah, yeah, me too. I actually, uh, the nerd pilot in me loves the E6B. Uh, if you're not familiar, it's essentially a slide computer, I guess. Yeah, it is. Like a manual computer, you know, manual in every nature of it. It's like, uh, you know, the abacus or something. So, yeah, the, uh, the E6B celebrates 80 years this year. That's pretty phenomenal. My goodness gracious, Ian. And, you know, it's interesting technology. And when you think back about it, uh, like I learned to fly in the year 2000, 2001, I guess I was already taken for granted that this device, you know, had been around for eons and I had never even thought about it not being there. And uh, yes, by golly, we had to learn how to work them and learn how to pinpoint uh, in a point on the on the clear part of the E6B and turn the dial and figure out your time and your wind, your angle you know, dealing with crosswinds and, you know, will I make a supposed cross-country flight to from point A to point B during my training? It was awesome. Yeah, it is a really, really elegant little device. Now, I will say, if, if you haven't used one as a student, if you got to, you know, skip the whole E6B and go straight to the iPad, the really, the, the killer part of that was always the diversion. 
right? So it's like the examiner yeah, says, yeah. all right, you're not going to your plan. You got to go somewhere else. Tell me how long it's going to take, how much fuel it's going to be, you know. And you had to sit there bumping along, one hand flying, you know, one hand looking down, spinning this thing. You're spinning the wheel while you're getting uh, battered by turbulence or, or sweating like uh, you know what. Because it, yeah, yeah. it was hot and under the gun. Yeah, so... Happy birthday and uh, good riddance, right? No, no. I no, think yeah, uh, the E6B lives on, Ian, in, uh, you know, in a lot of digital formats, by gosh. But, uh, well, before we leave it now, you know, I'll, I hate to always interrupt, but before we leave it, so should we tell our podcast listeners why it is named the E6B, or should we ask them to read Dan Namowitz's story instead on AOPA.org? Let's give them a hint, because, you know, it is kind of a curious name, right? And I've always wondered. So, yeah, it has something to do with, I think, when it was developed, kind of like WD-40, right? It's like the 40th formula they came up with. Uh-huh. Uh, it's somewhat <laughs> similar there, if I, I think. Am I correct about that? Let's just say, let's read Dan Namowitz's story instead at AOPA.org. How about that? All right, cool. Sounds good. Yeah, because um, you, you always wonder what where was an E6A until you read what yeah, he writes. That's right. Yeah. Hey, moving on a little more serious now, the Washington, D.C., SFRA and FRZ, the flight restricted zone, um, you mentioned this at the top, new NOTAMs are out for those. So if you fly around the D.C. area on a regular basis or if you are visiting, you have to make sure and read these. They have changed and there are some fairly significant changes there. Yeah, and as we record this, it's January 15th, and really this is the day that a lot of this goes into effect. The key part for pilots like me that fly around in this area, Ian, is that the uh, CIFRA training that is mandatory training when you're flying around in the Washington, D.C. area and what they call the, you know, the special freeze three airports at College Park, Potomac, Washington Executive, is that the training hasn't been updated yet. Yeah. So we have new rule, new rules, but the training is still what I took when I first came up here to AOPA in 2015. Yeah, that's right. So, yeah, if you go online thinking, OK, well, I'll just go to the course, you know, on, on the FAST website. It's like, don't bother. They will update it. They said it just hasn't been done yet. So I, you mentioned the, the three for the FRZ. I would say that's the most substantial change. And so whereas before, you you know, you have to get vetted and everything else. And, of course, you still have to do that. But now if you are approaching one of those airports or departing, you actually have to go through a specific corridor now. That's right. A specific corridor. And also... There's a squat code if you're going to stay in the pattern in, of the you know the traffic pattern at Leesburg, which is one of the three airports. And there's also a different transponder code for if you're arriving and departing. So this is the main you know a couple of the main differences. But I see that as a positive. I think that's a little bit probably going to be a little bit easier for folks once they get it figured out. Except for I'm not sure how the corridor is going to work out, and I'm not sure of the reasoning behind it. But we do know there's a good buddy of ours, uh, Stan Fetters, that helped write some of the rules originally after 911. And so I'm going to see if I can get him on the Hangar Talk podcast, and we'll see if we can delve further into this in the future. Yeah, it is kind of interesting. Now those are those airports are kind of a shadow of what they used to be, but there are definitely still operations there, and so this this will impact them. The other thing we should mention is there's a little more, I, I guess, explicit language around unmanned aircraft in these areas and how to operate them and can they be operated and what the procedure is, which I, I would assume the unmanned community has been kind of clamoring for. Yeah. And, you know, in the Washington, D.C. area, you know, basically you were unable to fly a drone in any form or fashion. So this is something that perhaps could pave the way for some future flights 
with drones and also some future technology that we might even be talking about a little bit later on this program. Yeah. So speaking <laughs> of unmanned, my flying car, Uber has been promising me this for a couple of years now. And so has every other, you know, tech company out there and everybody else. So I want to know, where is my flying car? Well, the only flying car that I know about that actually flew is, is Molt Taylor's flying car. And uh, Greg Herrick has one of those up there in Minnesota right now. But um, Hyundai and Uber have tried to partner with them, inked a deal to partner up on this. And they're really proposing that, that things are going to change this time. Ian, I just am not sure about this. Yeah, I don't know. Now, this is the reason we're talking about this now is consumer electronics, which happens in Vegas in January. You know, this this whole like urban air transportation segment has been big the last couple of years there. And so, as you mentioned, Hyundai did present, I guess, a model, I mean, for lack of a better word. And it kind of looks like a tilt rotor on steroids, I guess. Looks like almost like a combination between like an Airbus helicopter and a tilt rotor on steroids, I'd say. And, you know, when they introduced it over at the CES show in Vegas, as you mentioned, there was just a whole lot of interest in that. You and I both commented that the, um, one of the real telltale signs was that there were so many folks trying to take a picture of this mock-up that it, it actually made a good visual image. Yeah, yeah, you can see the sort of the the fervor around this. So, you know, on one hand, you think, oh, well, like, what's Hyundai doing in, in, you know, urban air transportation? But another, and they do make the point, they have sort of the scale of manufacturing. And uh, and that does bring something that a lot of others have not. Um, they've either been like, you know, like a Bell, which manufactures helicopters, but not, you know, huge numbers. You know, Embraer has been there. Mooney, funny enough, at one time had a little bit of a hand in it. So, yeah. A lot, a lot of folks have tried this. You know, Ian, it's a whole Wild West frontier, though. I mean, analysts at Morgan Stanley said they expected that by 2040, and, you know, looking at the global market, this could be a $1.4 trillion to $2.9 trillion, you know, investment by then in this kind of technology. And there are at least, at least 20 companies right now that are working to make this happen, uh, including one of the more well-known ones, is, which is Lilium. So we've heard a lot about them, and there's been some some good press about them as well. So it's real interesting that you know there's some real big money behind this project, behind these projects. So I guess we got to get the airspace up to speed, and perhaps that freeze, you know, a little bit of the lightning of the freeze concept there might have something to do with it. Yeah, and I just think you know, I mean, you, you consider. And I guess we've talked about some of this before, but it bears repeating. You know, you consider like some of the bills that have been put forth in New York City about helicopter noise and congestion, trying to ban them from Manhattan. And, you know, I know uh, helicopter uh, operations in L.A. are always an issue. And it's like you mentioned, you know, D.C. with the with the uh, airspace restrictions. And it's like so you take some of the biggest markets and now you just saturate them with these things. And, yeah, they're going to be a little quieter if they're electric, but. That doesn't mean they're going to be dead quiet and people are going to be okay with them flying over populated areas. And it's, I mean, there are just so, so many questions, I think. Technology probably being the, the easiest one to solve, honestly. Right. And so I think, you know, as we said before, the jury is still out. However, you know, this is something that we need to keep an eye on because I totally uh, think that, that the future is up in the air with a lot of the mobility, and I do think we'll get there. I think it's an infrastructure issue more than anything else, and specifically with airspace. Also, as you just alluded to, a little bit more besides airspace, but with how people perceive of aviation and is it safe, is it not safe? How about, you know, yeah, I want to go from point A to B from rooftop to roof, rooftop, but but no, not in my backyard. Yeah. 
So we've got to crack some of that code before we can move ahead. Yeah. And I think the other thing, you know, before we leave this just really quickly that that we should mention that I, I guess I'm most excited about is the technology that's developed for that segment coming to our segment. You know, it's like some of the automation and safety features and things like that. I mean, they could really, they could have broad implications. It could, it could. And I'm hoping that there still will be, you know, a good amount of the, a good amount of that segment that will need pilots in some fashion or another. And if they're not in the actual aircraft itself, I truly think they'll be on the ground in some type of control center. So I do think that that pilot, you know, journey uh, will be here for many years to come. Yeah, that's a great point. So some people who are probably looking for a job these days, unfortunately, you know, we mentioned this last time, Mooney. Boy, what a saga this has been. It's uh, it's just amazing. Just amazing. It's an up, down, up, down, and down again saga for Mooney Aircraft out of Kerrville. Ian, they, their workers came back from the holiday, from the extended Christmas break, and they worked for, uh, basically, they had worked for a couple of weeks, then went on holiday. Well, first, let's back up. If our listeners recall correctly, about a month and a half ago, Mooney told everyone to go home. They had a skeleton crew. Uh, we talked with uh, Dom Maxwell over in Texas. He's a Mooney Service Center guru. And he said, well, they still had service going on. Their parts were coming and going. But now that is not the case. Uh, I grabbed a hold of Devin Burns, a human resource staffer that the local paper called the de facto company spokesperson. And she was one of the folks who were furloughed. And basically everyone had to go home. They came back. They didn't get paid for work in those couple of weeks when they came back from the extended holiday and they were told to basically turn around and go home. Yeah. Yeah. It is really sad. I mean, we, I think I'm trying to pick up where we last talked about this on the show, but it's like, you know, it was, well, they had been furloughed, but Hey, there was this infusion of cash. Everybody's coming back kind of feeling good. And then, I mean, like you said, it's like they get back and immediately it's like, well, sorry, you know, we were wrong. And yeah, your, your story here is really good because it basically says, if you're looking for warranty support, anything like that, it's like, uh, sorry, but right now it's just not, not going to happen. There's just no support there. Well, that's a th- surprising thing about it because before Don Maxwell said that, that service was getting done for warranty repairs and parts, special parts were coming to go. A lot of the Moonies use parts that are not specific to a Mooney. But there are certain pieces and certain skins and things like that that you do have to get manufactured from the actual manufacturer in Texas. But right now we're afraid that none of that's happening unless we hear otherwise in, in the you know near future. And it's just the latest in a saga that started really in, in 1930, just a year after Albert Mooney established the brand 90 years ago. It you know suffered its first financial blow. And, you know, I'm a past Mooney owner myself, and I have a fond place in my heart for these aircraft. They're fantastic flyers, you know. I'm really worried about there's like 1,400 or so M20J models in the fleet that are out there, thousands of M20C, E, and F models. They're also out there. And the newer models, the you know, the Ovation, the long body models. And, and we had just saw that new update to the Mooney where it had two doors, you know, one for the pilot, one for the co-pilot. So things were moving ahead and in the right direction. Yeah, it is a shame. So we hope to see them back. And like we talked about before, there will be some iteration, whether it's a new owner or, you know, somebody picking up just the parts business or something like that. There's too many airplanes out there to ignore. And there is a business there. It's just, you know, are they going to be producing new airplanes? Uh, you know, who knows? That's that's harder to say, I think. I think they'll come back. I think so. I got. I, I'm, I think there'll be a knight in shining armor that blows through the door. And, you know, the one thing that'll happen is that, you know, we love aircraft. We love any kind of aircraft that's manufactured because basically we're all pilots. And Moonies are pretty sexy-looking airplanes. 
the run for the money now is the Cirrus aircraft line that really has been strong for the past uh, almost 20 years now, Ian. And the the double-door Mooney would give that Cirrus a run for the money if a parachute was available. I think that would that would go a long way. Uh, yeah, I totally agree. Yes, yeah, one, of, one of the things they need to look at, whoever ends up turning that company around and, and moving it forward. Yeah, good point. So, yeah, we're, we're holding on hope, I guess. But, hey, we want to finish today on uh, on Garmin. You know, they, they just come out with a new update on the integrated panels, the, the TXI, and now we're seeing a series of three-inch instruments, the GI-275s. These are just announced today. Just announced today, and the GI-275, it can function as, as a four-in-one flight instrument, and really it can also be installed as a safety instrument. So if you've already got a glass flight display, this acts as a standby instrument, and it's got one hour of battery power, 60-minute backup. That's pretty significant. That raises the stakes a little bit over their own Garmin G5, really. It does fit in a 3.125-inch instrument hole, which is pretty convenient for folks that are flying Cessnas and Pipers that are vintage. And I do think that folks will find that it's a real versatile instrument. It's not super cheap, but it's not break the bank either. I think it kind of hits, hits some of that middle ground, and it's a pretty, pretty interesting instrument, Ian. It is, and and I think the place for it in the market's kind of interesting. I mean, basically what you're looking at is a more or less common piece of hardware that like you like we said fits in the three inch hole and then they you can order it with you know the attitude indicator so you know kind of a primary horizon there you can do an hsi in that dg spot just a cdi indicator off to the side they've got a small mfd that can maybe function as like a second one or people with like limited cockpit space and then an engine uh, indication system uh, an eis they call it so Lots of good versatility there. Now, I, I don't anticipate people are going to be stacking these. Like, they're not going to go buy, you know, three or four of them probably. But you could. You could if you wanted to. Yeah, you could. I think what I think the the value here, the what people are going to be looking at is like, you know, I think you mentioned it's four grand. So the attitude indicator version, that primary instrument's four grand. So if you've got an overhaul or you're looking at a new mechanical instrument to just replace that one, you know, you might turn to Garmin in this case for that primary piece. Same with the CDI. I mean, we were looking there, CDI starts at 3,200 Garmin's. You know, the analog kings are anywhere from, depending on what you get, you know, what, 23 to 33. So it's pretty much the same price. So you're in the ballpark already. And if you're going to upgrade that or, you know, with a king unit, Ian, you got to send that unit back to the factory. We've uh, written some stories about that, too. So there's a blanket price for some of the overhauls. And, you know, just have to get out, maybe get out your slide rule and do a little dollars and cents figure in there and figure out what, you know, what's going to be the best bang for the buck. But I mean, if I can get an HSI, a CDI, and a multifunction display all in a three and a quarter uh, inch hole, uh, I might be going for that. Yeah, I think, you know, when you start to look at multiples, you're looking, you're, you know, you're in the Aspen range. So it's like maybe you just, you know, do kind of everything at once. But yeah, it, it, it will be interesting to see kind of what the market is, especially like you said with the G5. So I will say the displays they're building now are beautiful. I mean, if you look at the marketing stuff for this attitude indicator, it is, oh my God, it's, it's amazing. It is. It's really cool. And the other thing that you know I'm a little curious about is that other companies that have been in the, in the electronic engine monitor you know field for a long time. I wonder how does this kind of stuff affect them? Because you know we'll see. It's one of the things that if I can get if I can get an accurate 
you know, fuel reading on my panel and it and really is for real. I mean, I'm all for that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It is interesting, you know, you're talking about going with, it reminds me to go with one company for all these, right? So now you could go with Garmin for all, you know, essentially the, the whole panel. And I don't know, there's pluses and minuses to that, right? On the one hand, it's like you've got really fantastic integration. On the other, it's like, well, you know, I mean, Garmin's been super solid, but, you know, you, you think some of the others in, in our history, well, they're not around anymore, so. They've come and go, you're right. Now, the other the other thing, I'm, uh, I, I'm not quite sure how this new Garmin will play with other instruments, other radios, like uh, the brand, the uh, Avidyne brand, or even o- older, older Kings and things like that. So, you know, that's a consideration for anyone who's an aircraft owner to kind of get some of the facts and figure out what's going to work for you. Yep. Great point. Hey, let's, uh, let's bring Scott on. You guys had a great chat about, like we said, simulation, where it fits in uh, training, where it's going in the future, and uh, maybe most importantly, how it can save us some bucks. Welcome to Hangar Talk, Scott Fursing with AllSim, a company that's celebrating its 25th anniversary this year in the flight training simulator department. So, Scott, we're happy to have you with us today on Hangar Talk via Skype. Tell us a little bit about your background. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me, David. Yeah, I actually started with AllSim uh, Simulators about two and a half years ago. AllSim basically is a French headquartered company, uh, one of the largest uh, simulator manufacturers in Europe. And uh, they decided to open up a, uh, a full-time U.S. presence here, and uh, I was the, the first hire uh, on the ground. And uh, we've been uh, very lucky, a great company to to grow and expand the uh, the company and the operations here in the U.S. over the uh, you know past uh, 26 or 27 months. So uh, you started with Allsim just a couple of years ago, but now this company is not a new company. But a lot of folks in the states might not know enough about Allsim. Can you give us a quick rundown of how the company got started? Yeah, very good uh, Good point, David. Yeah, we are definitely not a new company. Uh, we're actually selling, celebrating our 25th uh, anniversary this year. So it started in 1994. A similar story to a lot of the other tech companies. It was uh, two guys in a, in a garage. One was the, uh, an Air France pilot and one was a uh, software engineer. And uh, decided that there was a, a sort of gap in the, in, the, in the market in terms of flight training, and that the technology at that point was getting reaching a level uh, where could, you could get a really high fidelity uh, fixed-based uh, training device at a relatively low cost. So uh, they actually decided to develop a, a simulator called the, the AL200, which had about 19 different aircraft in it. This was about 20 years ago, so it's sort of uh, relatively common now to have a, a reconfigurable simulators with different aircraft in it but at that point it was uh, relatively uh, new and now since then we've added uh, a bunch more products and of course have expanded now into over 50 countries and 350 simulators worldwide and about 250 uh, clients in the U.S. Uh, and elsewhere. So uh, for podcast listeners via Skype that aren't really familiar with 
flight simulators, although most of them should be. We are talking. We are not talking about just a inexpensive uh, little computer program. We are talking about what the FAA determines to be basically an advanced uh, trainer simulator device that you can actually use and log time with. Correct. That is correct. Yes, yeah, so that's a very very good point. So we focus a lot on on immersion. So we typically use a uh, three projectors. So you typically get a sense of it that you're flying, and all that is built into the actual the larger simulator. And to give your your listeners a sense, these can vary from about 12 feet by 10 feet to about 25 feet by 20 feet in width and length. So these are these are definitely not your small single seat. These are your larger devices. Essentially, the cockpits are about the same size as a, as a normal uh, aircraft uh, cockpit, uh, and then have projectors and other technology built around it so it's uh yeah it's definitely not your uh, microsoft flight sim with uh, on your on your computer understood but but that is how a lot of people started and before that you know, none of us really knew that you could even do that sort of thing it actually probably pretty much started this trend yeah that was exactly right i think i'm like uh, a lot of your listeners i started doing some of my flying back in the i think it was oof, maybe 90s i'm trying to think back maybe the, the original microsoft flight simulators uh, Back when I think the internet was still being uh, being uh, born, David, you know, the dial-up right. dial-up days and that. Uh, yeah, so I think a lot of us started uh, in that, and it has has expanded. So some of those uh, products are still available. We're a little different in the sense that we do a, a lot of our own uh, technology in-house. So some of us simulators actually purchase other programs that are developed by people like Lockheed Martin or or Microsoft, and they incorporate different components. But we do uh, we do it all ourselves for. Uh, it's more for uh, for adaptability purposes because the simulator, as over the years, has evolved and technology, of course, gets better. And as technology gets better, it's better for flight training. So you could do a lot more things on BFR that, you know, you couldn't do. The visuals weren't that good, say, 10, 10 years ago, where now, of course, with, with 4K and more uh, powerful uh, graphics cards and projectors, it, it definitely has changed the, the amount of training and what you can do in a, in a simulator. It's extremely realistic, and that helps a lot of folks, especially, I mean, you can use simulators for a variety of different things, you know, Scott. One one way, obviously, is for basic flight training and, you know, primary instruction. Also, instrument students can get a lot out of it. But I was thinking, you know, if you were a backcountry pilot and you never really flew into a certain backcountry strip, I'm guessing that would really help you out if you kind of flew that flew that approach to that runway and you kind of knew a little bit more about about the geographical features and that's something a lot of people really don't think about yeah oh yeah it's uh it used to be a lot about like you mentioned david there's uh this perception i think still like you come across this in, in the in the u.s quite a bit is that it's it's just great for instrument time but it's definitely gone a lot further than that now because of some of the things i mentioned uh, because how good the actual uh you call it force feedback or the actual handling of the um the aircraft feels pretty you know pretty realistic and of course those visuals uh doing cross-country uh, training or to do uh, practice certain approaches, GPS approaches, or whatever kind of approach it may be into a, uh, to a certain airport. Oh, there's, it's definitely, I mean, some of uh, flight schools that, that we work with, uh, it's actually going more into a military model. So it's not so much about logging hours. Simulators like, oh, you can, you can log this amount of hours in a simulator, like you mentioned, or whether it's the FAA or Transport Canada, or whoever the, the regulatory body may be. But Sometimes they don't even see an aircraft for you know six seven hours. They may do six seven hours in a, in a simulator first to get used to the the local airport. You know they've got 3D replicas of a, of a, you know down to to signs and, and taxiways. So they learn the airport. They learn how to taxi. Uh, learn how to take off. And once they've learned some of the, the the basics of your sort of PPL 
training, then they get in the in the exterior aircraft, and it's amazing how quickly they pick up on some of those basic skills. And and again, they, the student wins and the owner wins are saving uh, time and money, you know, in the aircraft, uh, you know, burning fuel and having hard landings and other things of, of that nature. So uh, absolutely, absolutely. Plus, it's like it's a real confidence builder too, especially for a primary student. I see a, a definite advantage in that kind of training. Hey, I want to um, jump back real quick and tell me a little bit. Tell me a little bit about. Uh, how the two guys got started, Jean-Paul and Jerome, how they got started. Jean-Paul was a software engineer and Air France pilot, Jerome, uh, I'll mess his, I'll mess both their last names up. Jean-Paul, yeah. Yeah, one more, in, more, yeah, and, yeah. and Jerome, and Jerome Benachon. So now how did they meet each other? Well, very good. Actually, they have a pretty good uh, French-American, uh, uh, French-English accent there. <laughs> so good, 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 good pronunciation. May uh, we? Yeah, we, we. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I believe that I, I couldn't speak for Jean-Paul, who's basically uh, has taken over as, as a CEO. Uh, it does a lot of the day-to-day operations. Where uh, Jerome now is, uh, we own also own a flight school called Airways uh, in France that has helped us over the years doing some testing on simulators and that, and of course help uh, t- tweak some of our, our products and and um, additions to our to our simulator range. But uh, I believe they were just uh, friends for other reasons. Of course, uh, yeah. So I couldn't tell you the, the exact. Story from their their perception, unfortunately, but um, I did know I do know it started with uh, one sale with a, uh, a flight school uh, in in France, and as uh, as the years gone by, they just slowly added uh, more and more uh, employees over the years and uh, more features, and uh, they were lucky. I mean, you know, a lot of aviation companies were with 9/11 hit, and of course 2008 to weather those uh, both those uh, storms, and uh, we have, we've been growing leaps and bounds, particularly the last three or four years. Uh, yeah, thanks for their uh, perseverance in those, or those early days. Absolutely. And actually, I was going to talk to you a little bit more about the past couple of weeks. Gosh, you guys are on a roll, Scott. Just one announcement after the next, after the next. Let uh, Tell folks out here uh, uh, via Skype a little bit about the AL-172. That's a Cessna 172 flight training device. And tell us a little bit about that and, and sort of its availability. And, and what about... You know, when will we see a lot more of these coming to the states? I know already the answer to part of this, but I want you to tell us. Yeah, yeah thanks, David. Yeah, no, it's it's been busy. We, um, Alstom in general has, has been known for uh, generic devices, um, and I, I won't bore your your reader with differences between EASA and the FAA and other countries. But uh, we we produced a, a simulator that was really well built for, um, especially on the turboprop level, for, to do uh, multi-crew training, uh, crew resource uh, management and now even jet orientation training at the same time have the availability of a 172 in that same particular simulator. So it was almost, you could get multiple aircraft in one same. It was, it was a perfect option for a lot of uh, flight schools and flight training organizations that uh, maybe don't have space or the infrastructure. And, but in the last couple of years, we decided that there are more need for type specific products. So you mentioned the AL-172. So that is essentially, it's, it's an exact replica uh, of a uh, of a brand new Skyhawk, uh, it's got we use real Garmin, so it's a real Garmin G1000 NXI, and we recently got that certified by the FAA a few weeks ago, and those are being uh, delivered and have been used by um, several training organizations. Uh, Kent State University, for example, recently purchased four of our simulators in, in Ohio that are being installed now. Hey, congrats on that! I was hoping you were going to bring it up. That's that's a good sign. I like hearing that. Yeah, yeah, great, great team. Uh, we're very lucky. We have some great, great clients. We call them the Alston family. So they um, very, very fortunate. They had some help, uh, some donations with, with from FedEx, and they have a brand new building opening up. And we're seeing this a lot more, especially in the U.S. Or 
people at the uh, older airports, those World War II era hangars that are getting some upgrades uh, uh, needed now with the uh, pilot shortage and the aviation boom. So they were one of those. Uh, also, the University of Dubuque uh, who has got a new building in Iowa and recently purchased one of our our simulators as well. So yeah, we're, yeah, we're definitely so we're growing. And then overseas, uh, uh, as you mentioned, maybe a lot of people may not know it's in, in the States, but of course, Europe are very, very well known. And uh, Airbus just launched a new uh, flight academy, their own flight academy. In France, they purchased one of our Diamond 42 uh, type specifics, so a brand new replica of a, of a Diamond 42 uh, multi-engine. And then uh, KLM, of course, the Dutch uh, airline also purchased our ALX to do some jet jet training for their for their cadets to sort of fill that gap between a a, a multi-engine uh, Seminole or or whatever it may be before they get into a, a regional jet in Embraer or an Airbus or or Boeing. So I heard that uh, that some pilots like when they're uh, studying. For uh, you know, basically to be ATPs, that they and if say if they get signed on with a major airline or a, maybe a package holiday giant here in the U.S., that they're they're doing most of their training on a simulator and then they jump into the cockpit, kind of like their first flight with passengers is their first real flight in a real aircraft. I mean, how does that factor into to this kind of simulator training? Have you seen that that also? Yeah, um, we're seeing actually we're seeing a huge growth, uh, David. The last, well, basically in the in the fixed based market, I think there's been a push by uh, not just us, but also some of the larger you know, the CAE, the flight safeties. Uh, you know, a lot of your airline pilots listening, you know, guys that do the type rating, but there is a lot of that that procedural training and some of that initial training you can do in a in a fixed based, relatively inexpensive simulator, and it's uh, been particularly useful for guys especially the rotary guys coming back into the fixed wing uh, market that you know, aren't used to all the glass and the technology and the FMS and that environment. Um, and also just to, to brush up on a lot of the, uh, the skill sets needed at, uh, at that level. And because also, I mean, the aircraft manufacturers are selling a, a lot of aircraft and taking big orders all from China, U S uh, and that's uh, so often uh, sometimes there's not aircraft available. So if you've got a, of course, a simulator, you know, they're doing extremely well, especially in the larger hubs like Orlando, Dallas, and those cities. Absolutely, absolutely. And I, I got a chance to fly. I, I'm, I don't want to put you on the spot. I don't think it was y'all's device, but it was a simulator in a in a, in a UPS mock-up. And, I mean, I felt like I was – I mean, I did pretty well taking off in that jet and landing it, and that was pretty good. I was real surprised. I don't think I'd ever find myself in the front seat of an actual – UPS cargo hauling aircraft, but this sure was the next best thing, and I was very impressed. Yeah, the uh, the fidelity. Now we always use the word fidelity. It's just like, when you essentially when you mix everything together. From I mean, you can do ATC, the visuals, the, the of course, if it's an exact replica of, of a cockpit, um, it really is one of the best environments to learn, and of course, the safest environment to learn. And I think that people are more and more are realizing that, uh, as you mentioned before, Dave, especially in the, on the early stages, you know, uh, you could, a lot of the, your listeners can think back to maybe those first couple hours uh, when you ever got into a whatever aircraft, it might be a PA-28 or a 170, you're, just, you're overwhelmed by, uh, you know, uh, the microphone speaking to your instructor, just texting, it's all just all, it's all over, overwhelming and you really don't, it's really tough to absorb the actual lessons that you're supposed to learn uh, in that training uh, when you're being uh, in that environment. But if you're in more of a sterile, 
you know, in a simulator, uh, you can do failures and of course, emergency procedures. You definitely you absorb that, that, that learning a lot, a lot faster than you do it in, in an aircraft. I totally agree. And for us GA pilots and folks who are brushing up on their training, it's a lot easier and a lot safer to stop the simulator rather than, you know, fly another wonky approach at 150 bucks an hour in a, in a real airplane and really, you know, stuff goes by too fast and you kind of don't absorb it. So I do like the fact that you could split these lessons up and really take a task and dig real deep into it in a simulator device. I really find that very advantageous. Well, David, I mean, you're actually reading a really big point because there's often, uh, well, number one, I mean, we gave a, a speech at a conference a couple of months ago and they were telling one of the best uh, guys stood up and crowd and said, Scott, he says, just want to let it, all the people here in the room let you know that the best button on the simulator, from my experience, is, is the pause button. And that's true. You can't, you can't pause in, in the actual air and uh, in the aircraft and say, okay, what's, you know, what just happened? You know, what did you do right? What did you do wrong? What are you planning on doing now? Where are you looking? It just, it's hard to, to uh, you know, understate the, um, the importance of, of, of that aspect. But I think where we're going now in terms of simulators, you're seeing a lot more, a lot more automation because of the instructor shortage, things that you know, students can practice uh, on their own. And there's a lot of things that we miss, you know, as, as, as humans and to the human eye. And uh, uh, recently, that's a really good example that your listeners might, might appreciate that. I think it was uh, the, one of the head of training for, uh, for CAE was saying he was uh, practicing a takeoff in a, uh, in a jet uh, simulator. And the students, everything, according to the instructor, looked like it was, it was perfect. Um, and then, unfortunately, at the end of the session, there was a, a light came on and said, oh, there was a failure. You know, the guy, the student failed the, uh, the scenario. I said, well, how did he tell the scenario? It looked, it looked perfect. It looked, you know, 100% uh, uh, in, in according to him. But actually, the what the pilot forgot to do was actually to pull up the landing gear. Oh, and, man. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> just things that, uh, so uh, that's something that, connect, you know, of course, the, it's a very tough, the, the relationship between a, a, a student and instructor, of course, is, is vital in, in flight training. But there's sometimes there's things we miss. And then technology can can assist uh, with grading and and things of that nature. So you'll see uh, probably a lot more of that, and even GA type simulators uh, in the future. And Nelson uh, ourselves are, are are working on on more software technology like like that. Hey Scott, guilty as charged. I used to fly a Mooney. I owned a, a couple of Moonies, and also we had a Beach Sierra that I flew in and around here in Maryland. And of course. Uh, yeah, I forgot to I forgot to raise the landing gear. I was wondering why my climb performance was so poor. That'll that'll teach you real quick. I tell you, man, that's one thing that does happen. But again, if you're um, hammering home the techniques and the procedures, and you do it over and over again in a simulator, that probably would be a lot better way to get that routine down than it would be when you're listening to ATC. You're getting buffeted by wind. You know, dials are changing, your attitude is changing. And so it's hard to concentrate on on these very important things all at the same time. I really do see that a sim is a great way to get going. It really boosts that confidence, like we said earlier. Oh, David, yeah. And I highly encourage if any of your listeners are going to be at um, EA AirVenture Oshkosh, we have uh, two of our our simulators uh, are going to be there uh, this year. And uh, to actually get a sense of, of, the, of the, the the depth perception of the, of the visuals are so good when the terrain and, of course, things now like uh, streets and runways and, and buildings, it's so exact that uh, you get people looking when they're doing certain approaches, they're looking around for, you know, for traffic. Of course, we can, we can uh, send traffic into their, uh, into their way, but uh, they're just like, wow, I really feel like I'm, 
uh, I'm in an aircraft, so we're, we'll be in Hangar B if they want to uh, to come by and, of course, uh, fly and see exactly what we're talking about. Because I know it's tough uh, to listen to a to a podcast, but once you see it with your own eyes, you can. Uh, you know, I think a lot of your listeners will be blown away the the value. That sounds good. I'll make a I'll make a point to come visit you guys myself. Well, look, let's talk a little bit about your background because I'm interested uh, not just in in who you're representing and who you are working for, and, and you are the U.S. Sales Director, right? I just want to make sure we get our title right. Yeah, well, I'm actually, well, uh, I guess I'll be the manager, not a, not a director yet. <laughs> well, keep working at it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's 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 been great. We were uh, very lucky, David, and. Uh, so my background is, is, is kind of I was actually supposed to be uh, join the, the Air Force a long, a long time ago. But as so happens, I met a very, very nice young lady and ended up getting married and career paths uh, changed and uh, ended up doing my Ph.D. in international politics and working with uh, with our government overseas. It's, it's a it's a long story. Fantastic. That sounds like you've got a lot of experience, a wealth of experience in a, in a lot of different fields. That's pretty cool. Yeah, and I also at one point worked for a South African defense contractor uh, for a short stint, and we did some refurbishments on some some old uh, Mirage uh, fighter jets, and uh, so I had a good mix and worked a lot with our embassy. I lived in South Africa for for most of my adult life, and uh, but aviation was always that passion, and uh, there's a couple air shows in, in Africa every uh, every other year, and then eventually we decided to move back to to America, uh, my family, about about three years ago. And uh, this job came up, and it's been a it's been a blessing uh, blessing ever since because Alton really is is a great team, a great great product, and uh, and uh, yeah. So with just to add clients, like I mentioned, uh, particularly we're quite uh, we're actually a little more more well known in Canada, but we've had clients. People say, oh, yeah, with our first Ashkosh a few years ago, David, people would be like, oh, uh, you know, where where are you guys? Are you guys brand new? And said no, and like Eastern Kentucky University, uh, for example, has had our sim for over ten years. So we've got some simulators scattered around. But it's really since uh, the last two or three years we've been able to uh, to get a lot more immersed into the uh, you know the aviation community. Uh, we do shows like Sun and Fun, Oshkosh, uh, some of the university associations and, and others to to help get our, our brand name out there. And we appreciate the support from people like you guys and getting people uh, into our uh, into our simulators. And uh, we were hiring just so if your listeners are, are interested, uh, we're so one of the more exciting things that. Uh, that is going on because uh, because of the numbers. Just to give your listeners an example, uh, we used to sell about ten to uh, ten to eleven simulators a year, maybe on average. Uh, David, the simulators range, you know, they're relatively expensive, about one hundred and fifty thousand U.S. dollars up to about eight hundred thousand for our seven three seven three twenty airliner simulator. It's called, which is one of our newer products. But in the last uh, two or three years, we sold uh, close to 50 last year, and we're projected to sell over 60 uh, this year worldwide. So uh, that's quite a jump. That's a big jump. It is. It is, and then we attribute that, of course, to the to the pilot shortage and the growth and technology. Uh, but of course, then a lot of our a lot of our clients also typically once they have one of our simulators, do order another one. So we do a lot of repeat business, and of course, new business. Uh, some of the guys we mentioned before, like Kent State and Airbus, and uh, many many more in Canada as well. But we decided uh, last year and uh, to uh, start looking uh, to opening up U.S. assembly and production to cater towards the American and the Canadian market, um, and that is going ahead. Then we should be opening up our, our facility in Central Florida uh, over the next uh, next couple of months. So we will be uh, recruiting for people for technicians and installers and, and several other roles. So um, if anybody's interested, they can definitely take a look at our, our website, and we'll be we'll be posting jobs there soon. 
Oh yeah, they'll be interested if they're listening to this to this uh, Hangar Talk podcast. I'll give the link real quick. It's it's obviously www.alsim.com, and it's pretty easy to get to. And they could poke around there, Scott, and and try to get word to you guys because I think that as we all know, the aviation industry is in a pilot shortage and a technician shortage. But you know, a lot of folks don't realize that aviation is just one part of the aviation business. I'm, by that, I mean flying an airplane or maintaining an airplane. But there are tons of other opportunities, as in computer programming, business, management, and we can go on and on. And so you just mentioned a couple of job positions here that folks who might not be ace aviators, they still might be ace computer technicians or managers or sales personnel. So these kind of things are really interesting that the aviation world just kind of encompasses all of this. Oh, yeah. Dave. I think that's one of the things, well, you know, that's all too well is that the aviation industry is such a, such a great industry. It seems like everybody knows everybody, who, you know, whether you're, you're in Singapore or you're at Oshkosh or I'm actually flying over to France tomorrow for, for Bourget for the Paris Air Show. We have a, we have a booth there with some of our, our clients and, uh, and everybody's extremely friendly, and of course, everybody loves the, the passion for aviation. But like you mentioned, it, it, a lot of it, particularly in our in our world, is, is very much all now software driven. So it's coding. It's but there's all types of field. Of course, there's business side. There's there's a, a certification side, uh, getting these certified with the regulatory bodies, doing doing documentation, developing flight manuals. The list goes on and on. Of course, then of course the maintenance side, and it often doesn't really get the publicity as the pilot shortage, but of course the maintenance shortage, we all all know too well what is happening happening there. So yeah, it's definitely a great, great industry and, and growing and a lot of opportunity. And I think a lot of the youth, uh, unfortunately, uh, they were doing a lot better job, but there's been a lot of promotion with high schools and more programs and things to AOPA and others uh, where it is getting out. So hopefully uh, you know, we'll keep doing that and uh, they get bitten by the aviation bug and uh, whatever, whatever, whatever area of aviation, whether it be ATC or flight attendants or, whatever it may be, hopefully they'll, they'll join the industry. Well, you bring up a good point, and AOPA is is pretty adamant about opening up the pilot community to other people, and we do have that high school curriculum. In fact, teachers were just up here at Frederick, Maryland last week learning about the ninth grade and 10th grade curriculum. But now, how did you get interested in aviation? You told us you told us at the beginning of the podcast that you really were interested in the Air Force. Now, how did you even want to you know pursue any kind of aviation or, or flying at all? What turns you on to that? Dave, I don't know. This is probably going to sound really corny, <laughs> but um, I, I, I'm close to 40 now. So if you do the math, um, I was, you know, the 80s and the early 90s was sort of that era that I remember, uh, you know, was very influential in my life and just things like watching Top Gun. I know it sounds <laughs> silly. A lot of people, <laughs> a lot of people cite that, Scott. You are not alone, sir. Yeah, and uh, it's things like when you, yeah, Top Gun, um, even some of the older, I mean, for the, for the guys, the younger generation wouldn't know now, some of the older cartoons of G.I. Joe and Transformers. I think the the, military, the U.S. military industrial complex did a really good job with Hollywood during that era to uh, to get a lot of the youngsters in, involved. And, and of course, we did some, some air shows if they were in the area, and then uh, once computers got more more prominent, uh, you know, things like you mentioned, Flight Simulator and certain certain games um, that uh, really boost, boost that interest. And uh, actually, when I was finishing up uh, my university days up in, in New Jersey, I went to a school called uh, Rutgers University, uh, for my bachelor's at least. Um, I know where that is. It's just outside yeah. of New York. Absolutely. Very good. Yeah, very good. Dude. So, um, 
one of the I was actually working full time at, at the same at the same time doing my my degree and uh, one of the guys was retired Air Force and his son was uh, in the New Jersey National National Guard and he's saying well they got two you know two slots every year but you got to do your private pilot license and so I uh, started uh, flying at a small uh, flight school in northern uh, New Jersey and I remember the first time we took off and you could see. Uh, you know, see Manhattan in the sort of New York City in the, in the far distance, and I think at that point I, w- I was hooked. I was, and the instructor was like, "All right, now what's going on?" And <laughs> trying to get my focus back onto the actual cockpit, what was happening. Uh, but I, uh, I really, I, just, I remember coming, landing that when we landed, and just like, "Wow, this is this is fantastic." But of course, of course, things changed. Uh, but now I'm very, uh, very happy, and uh, I think very lucky and fortunate to be back uh, working for such a, a great company with great product and a and a great industry. Well, it sounds like a good story when you started out, you know, flying out of uh, New Jersey, northern New Jersey, not far from the big city in New York City. And then, did you get your private pilot certificate when you're back here? You mentioned that you traveled overseas for a while, or is that something you put on hold for a little bit? That's something I've actually put on hold twice now, <laughs> unfortunately. And uh, we're supposed to be uh, to wrap everything up earlier this year. Um, our, luckily, our clients have been fantastic. They're like, oh, please, uh, from California to Vancouver to, to Florida, come, you know, finish up uh, with us and, you know, spend uh, spend time. You can even stay at our house. I mean, some of the, the owners of the, the flight schools and the universities, they were fantastic and uh, willing to really help out. Um, so, yeah, that is in the, in the works. I need to... Uh, to, to finish up at least uh, my people. I feel like I know, I guess, with some of the, the different uh, backgrounds of our simulators and the training, I feel like this should be relatively easy for me, but <laughs> given all the, uh, uh, you know, what we flight manuals and technology and things we work on, uh, but I just need to find, hey, David, I think, you know, most people in aviation are extremely busy, <laughs> as you know, all too well. Your so. story is not unusual. We hear <laughs> about that all the time, Scott, and there's, there's plenty of time, you know, to get that knocked out, but, so it sounds like you're almost there. You're almost at there where you're able to get your certificate. You started out a while back, and it's just one of those things that life gets in the way. We hear about that very, very frequently. But with simulators coming on board, this will help keep you brushed up, and you'll just need a couple hours with an instructor and really hopefully just knock it out. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's where the simulators come come on board, and hopefully that's what the uh, the hiring also. I'm hoping my team. We've already hired uh, hired four more people since since I've started with Allison here that are in the U.S. for technical support, which has helped uh, you know customer service and and, and uh, you know for our clients here and some sales and, and marketing people as well. So hopefully a few more hires, and maybe I could uh, David maybe take a few weeks off and uh, you know get get up get up in the air and in in, in the aircraft. But uh, definitely is nice using one of our simulators to do that training, that's for sure. Well, we're, we're here at uh, APA. We're here to help you out and back you up on that, Scott. All right, I, I want to put you on the spot real quick here, and I know it's going to be uncomfortable, but one of the things, and we're uh, just for our podcast listeners, we're going to wrap up pretty soon, but one of the things that you guys were jumping on board with at the, uh, just about a month and a half or so ago was um, was with the Red Bull Air Race, and you guys had an Air Challenger, basically a Challenger-class division pilot that had come on board and, and she was going to help out a little bit with some of the publicity and use one of those um, awesome flight devices in her in Challenger class aircraft. Now, our listeners probably know, or if they hadn't heard that, um, that the Red Bull Air Race after this year is probably uh, be gone, going to go away. But tell us a little bit about the pilot that you guys recruited because I think her story is kind of cool and a little bit about what y'all had planned her yeah unfortunately um melanie actually melanie astle is her name is a young uh, french woman 
acrobatic champion, as you mentioned, David, uh, Red Bull, uh, Red Bull racer. Alston has been really good, sort of part of the culture of the company to embrace things that like AOPA does is, uh, you know, youth in aviation and also, uh, you know, growing more women, women in aviation. So they decided a few months ago that people uh, know Melanie, especially in, in France, that they uh, to, to work with her. And part of the, the partnership essentially was, of course, to promote women in aviation, support Melanie, but also to develop a, a similar exact replicator uh, of her exact plane so she could practice on a certain races and uh, you know, develop all the, the, the tracks around the, around the world. So, yeah, definitely it was, it was unfortunate to, to hear the news. I think it was kind of unexpected for, for a lot of people. You know that the unfortunately just that interest is is, is waning. It's just not there, and uh, you know with Red Bull with the cancellation, like you like you mentioned after after this year. So um, I do know I'll probably find out more next week when um, with Melanie will be in, in France at, at the Paris Air Show, and then she will also be at Oshkosh. So your so your listeners know she'll be there on the on the Wednesday. Oh yeah, that'd be great, and yeah, we're going to actually have a, an Airstream uh, trailer over there in front of the AOPA area. And we're going to do some podcasts and stuff, so maybe we'll have to we'll have to twist her arm to come join us. You know, get Melanie over there. You know, I, I wanted to let our listeners know right before you go there. Now she's a real deal. This is a, a woman who's was a, a very good pilot. She was flying the Red Bull Edge 540. The Challenger class is one class below the World Championship classes that you know we heard about Michael Goulian a lot, and and we heard about several of the other. Pilots, but um, the Challenger class was sort of the up-and-coming pilots, and she is not a new person to the sky. She has a pretty good aviation background. Yeah, that, that, that hit the nail on the head. So um, I don't know. Obviously, she's going to continue flying, and then there's other just because Red Bull is, you know, is, is stopping. There are, of course, other other air races around around the world that will that will continue on. So we'll definitely get uh, more information from her uh, uh, next week. So, but yeah, definitely, if your listeners uh, have. But uh, she'll be on our booth. I, I remember. I think it is Wednesday. I'll send you, David, some some information you can post uh, for your listeners as well. But I'm pretty sure it's the the, the Wednesday at Oshkosh, and um, especially encourage those young those young girls out there to uh, to uh, to definitely meet her and uh, hear her story because it is pretty uh, inspirational. Yeah, she's a good role model for a lot of folks, and we wish her a lot of luck. All right, well, I, in, the, in the waning moments of our Skype interview here with you, Scott, anything else that you want to let folks know about? I mean, we talked a lot about the pilot shortage and how we could alleviate some of that and some other careers that are involved with aviation. We talked a good bit about Allsim, about how you guys burst on the scene 25 years ago and really uh, made made your way in uh, sort of in you know with the jet cockpits and kind of worked your way down towards 172s and the Diamond uh, DA42 twin. Anything else that we hadn't touched about that you think might be good for our listeners? Yeah, I think for more and more we're uh, you know after 25 years we're uh, we're looking more towards uh, just little little teasers. We'll have some more uh, announcements, of course, at, at future uh, next couple of air shows that uh, we'll we'll send on to you guys and your listeners. Um, Stuff we can't can't mention now, but are in the works. But we're looking a lot more towards partnerships, about um, using the expertise of, of other companies. As as your listeners will know, there's a lot of uh, specialized uh, within the aviation industry uh, that have fantastic tools, fantastic training, fantastic syllabi. That we're looking to partner a lot more with with U.S. experts, essentially. So we started that already with a company called Aviation Performance Solutions that are helping us do um, some scenarios for upset prevention and uh, their own. Uh, technology. They're based in uh, in Arizona. So there's a lot of UPRT for the for the airlines there. Uh, so it's one example of a, of a partnership we're working on uh, to enhance the abilities of our of our uh, simulators. And uh, we'll probably be doing a lot more on that 
the plan is on the um, or more on the ab initio on the PPL and the instrument and the commercial commercial level as there. So um, we're looking forward to a lot more interaction with, the, with all those different companies. Well, Scott Fersing, the sales director for Allsim here in the states, we really appreciate your time on the phone uh, on Skype for Hangar Talk. And also, like I said, for let folks know that there's a lot more to your company, but there's also a lot more to aviation than some people might think when they when they start thinking about flying or an aviation career. So with those final uh, few words, I want to say thank you very much, Scott, for joining us today on Hangar Talk, and I hope that I'll see you at AirVenture. Awesome. Thanks very much, David. I really appreciate your time. Hope to see you there. All right, David, thanks for that. It's a, a great chat. They're a really, it's a cool sim. I mean, if you go to a show and uh, you, you got to check it out because you've probably seen a Redbird and uh, maybe some of the others, but this is a really neat box that they've created. Yeah, and, you know, all sim, they were kind of at the forefront of this multi-use simulator, you know, one simulator that can do a variety of different tasks and, and simulate a variety of different aircrafts. And so that would be helpful for folks who are flight school owners and colleges, universities, that kind of thing. And so, yeah, they've come a long way and celebrating 25 years. I mean, more power to them. And it really, you know, Allsim's got a bigger footprint in the U.S., and I think it'll just continue to get bigger. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, I think that's all the time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. And I'm David Tulis. Don't forget, you can find us at aopa.org slash hangertalk. We're on iTunes. We're on the Sporties Takeoff app. We're also on Spotify. All right, we'll see you next time. See you next time, Ian. Hangar Talk from AOPA, your freedom to fly.